This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. You know, when we went to ask Bruce to help support it because uh, we needed, uh, you know, we have to get a supermajority, so we literally need two Republican votes. So we went to him and said, we'd like you to get behind this. And uh, his response was, I don't think you have the votes. And I just kind of laughed because I'm thinking, if I had the votes, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> That's the whole point. Um, and, you know, I, I don't need a weather vane for executives. I need a leader. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, an American teacher abroad. Today's conversation is a conversation with Pierce County Councilmember Derek Young. Derek's a repeat guest on the show. He's frankly one of my favorite politicians to engage with. Uh, if you've watched Derek over mm, the last 15 years in local politics, he's kind of, as Kenny Coble says, he's on a journey. Uh, Derek was elected to the uh, Gig Harbor City Council as a teenager and was essentially like the Alex P. Keaton, which is a Generation X reference, uh, kind of wunderkind policy wonk uh, as a teenager. Uh, he then made it to the uh, Pierce County Council and basically because he was representing the harbor and the peninsula ran as a moderate. And essentially, like a lot of us, he's been radicalized over the last couple of years. And I would say that Derek belongs pretty, pretty uh, squarely in the Elizabeth Warren progressive wonk caucus of, of the Democratic Party. Uh, Derek, as the county council member, has purview over the county health department and also the sheriff's office. And today we're going to chop up kind of events that are happening back home, uh, how the county is responding to the COVID-19 outbreak and how the sheriff's department is. Well, there's an article in the News Tribune that talked about use of force. And we're going to talk today about neck restraints. So, Derek, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Derek, just I'm going to start every interview with the same question. Like, how are you holding up right now? How are things for you? You know, I'll be honest, uh, this has all been very difficult. Uh, This is one of the rare times that county government really leads the the way on things. And so we've been extremely busy. Um, And, you know, uh, everyone's got their own situation at home. Um, But, you know, I'm doing this. I'm a single guy. And so, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, all of that's been interesting to navigate. Uh, So I just I'm working a ton. And, uh, that gets tiring after a while. But other than that, um, you know, all things considered, my, I've got my health and my family's health, and that's good. And I'm a new uncle and again. So, oh, congrats on that. Congrats. Yeah. Uh, and so you're a member of the Pierce County Council. Which position do you occupy? Uh, my position is a District 7, which uh, basically I represent uh, North End, West End, Tacoma, uh, as well as Ruston, and then uh, the peninsulas and islands. Okay. And this is your second term and your term limited, correct? Correct. Yeah, so I have two and, years after this this year. Okay, and so there's a certain a, a, a certain amount of like mm, freedom that comes with being a second term politician who doesn't have to stand before voters this time. And so I've noticed you've been a little more um, 
chesty is a wrong word, but it's the word I'm going to use about <laughs> things recently, uh, in particular about the county executive. And so I want to dive into all of that. So let me ask you this really fast. How do you think Pierce County is doing in regards to its response to COVID-19 on the whole? I, taken as a whole, uh, I think we've done okay, uh, particularly compared to the rest of the country. You know, there, there, we have some national leadership problems that have created big obstacles, um, but even still, you know, we have taken it fairly seriously. Um, and as a state, of course, uh, Governor Inslee has really taken it seriously um, and has done better than, than most uh, governors. Uh, at the same time, I'm disappointed by uh, a number of decisions that have been made that, um, you know, could have made things worse. They certainly didn't make things better. And, um, and you know, quite frankly, um, you know, there are times that I think the, the politics of the situation have been put ahead of, of public health. And in an emergency like this, I just think that's inexcusable. So I want to unpack several things that you said. You said there are some incidents and things that have happened that you uh, were unhappy with. Like what? Uh, you know, it's pretty clear from the beginning that the uh, executive wasn't um, as convinced um, by the science on the problem and uh, was taking a lot of steps that, uh, you, you know, were detrimental to the public's health and, and put, created unnecessary risks. Just as an example, um, at, you know, you can go back how, however far that masks were being recommended and we ordered them, for example, at the health department, which is a separate agency. And we can talk about that in a minute. Um, but the, you know, I asked a couple times for the executive to create a mask mandate for employees in the county city building and other uh, offices around, uh, you know, Pierce County government. And his response was basically, everyone's got different kind of jobs and whatever, and I'm leaving it up to supervisors. That to me was a very strange decision. It was frustrating for a lot of the other departments who didn't have the authority to um, impose their own, you know, and so they had, you know, customers and, and employees kind of wandering around without just a basic safety precaution that we know uh, improves things. Another decision that was made, and this was on the council, uh, frankly, uh, was we received $158 million in CARES Act funding. Um, the, uh, rather than going through normal appropriation channels where the council controls that process. Uh, the decision was made by the Republican majority effectively to um, hand almost all total control to the county executive. Uh, and he spends that money as he sees fit. So for several months, I guess two months, um, uh, he basically refused to appropriate the public health portion of those dollars uh, to get the health department the funding that they needed uh, to scale up our test and trace system uh, to pay back the funds from all the activated employees. At one point, half of our health department was activated due to COVID. So they weren't being, effectively, they weren't doing their regular jobs and so they couldn't be paid out of those grants and, and fee funds. So um, we were getting close to um, really bankrupting the, the county health department uh, during a pandemic, which was uh, insane. And so finally, you know, I, I never like being in the position of the person that's sort of uh, running around with his hair on fire over uh, issues, that was an issue where I really started raising the alarm and saying, look, this is wrong, it's, it's causing problems and um, it's a necessary burden for our health department. Uh, since then, uh, you know, really, I mean, and here's my, my main critique of the executive is that it's been more than two years that he's even visited the council, um, either to advocate for his own bills or to check in with us. So 
the promise from the beginning was total transparency and how we're going to spend these dollars. Um, instead, it's a report out on what they've already actions they've already taken. So we find out basically in a press release that X amount of millions of dollars has been spent on something. There's no involvement of the council in the process. There's no explanation for the reasoning behind the appropriations. And, you know, the, there's really little accountability over it. That's surprising. I think that most people would assume that in the same way that the mayor is a part of the city council meetings in Tacoma and attends city council meetings, that the executive would do the same. That's not the way it works? No, no. It's uh, Yeah, in, in, in cities around Washington, at least, and this is, uh, you know, it kind of is different around the country. Uh, the executive does not operate the, you know, run the, the county council meetings. That's done by our chair. Uh, so, uh, yeah, literally, I mean, it's, it, in normal times, we work in the same building, so that it's always been weird to me. Um, but I think, you know, to me, the strangest part of it is that, um, you know, it's not like, it, you know, t- typically in the past, you know, uh, Executive McCarthy would come and advocate for the bill, her priorities, her policy agenda, um, and make the case, and then you know, hope the council votes for it. To not do that, it seems almost. Uh, self-defeating. And I've, I've never understood why that's his approach to the jet, to the gig, but especially in a crisis like this, uh, where leadership is called for, uh, and this is, you know, really a role that executive, uh, policymakers should play. And I see, you know, colleagues from around the country, I'm, I'm very active in our national association. I sit on the health policy committee and I see, you know, judge Jenkins, uh, from Dallas County on TV all the time dealing with their crisis and, uh, really leaning into what needs to be done for their community. And um, and it's just the exact opposite here. Why do you think that is? Because so, as somebody who I think pays well, never mind. That's stupid. I know I pay more attention than the average Joe. Uh, the executive has painted himself as a uh, a moderate Republican who's a fiscal conservative and a problem solver. And it sounds like you're saying that that's actually not what you're getting uh, out of the executive. Not, uh, yeah, I, I suspect it's because, you know, the the if you look at the folks who have been sort of concerned that this is all a hoax or a conspiracy of some sort, um, you know, they primarily come from the rank and file of his party. And I think he's been reluctant to go against them. Uh, if you look at what's happened with the governor's race, for example, uh, you have a the, the, their party's nominee for governor um, is, you know, has been having in-person unmasked rallies all over the place uh during this pandemic um and i i suspect he's being cautious about angering those folks uh, again that's just my suspicion he's never said it out loud but it's always been uh it, it's just been a constant pushback on the public health uh data and research on this that you know a questioning that is um has never really made sense to me uh, and as a result you know and it you know it, I can't say that that county level leadership would have made a difference because you have the president of the United States, you know, saying and doing what he's been doing. But when you when you have a party leader, probably the most prominent person in his party, aside from uh, Mr. Cole, who's, you know, their governor nominee this cycle, um, you know, it gives people permission to uh, to believe in that stuff. If you have people providing some leadership and demonstrating that, no, we need to take this seriously. As you see in other you know, states, like you know, Governor DeWine in Ohio um, has, has always taken it very seriously. Governor Hogan, that, that leads folks who trust them um, more 
in the right direction. And so as a result, I think it's been detrimental to us locally. It, it's meant everything's a little more of a struggle. Uh, and, you know, that's why our you know, schools aren't opening uh, as we had hoped. You know, public health knows as well as uh, you know, anyone the importance that schools have for kids, you know, not only their academic well-being, but their physical, emotional, social, emotional learning, behavioral health, you name it. I mean, these, these, there's really important stuff that happens for kids in schools. We want kids in schools. Uh, the failure to get there uh, is because of a failure leadership. And I, I'm just incredibly frustrated by that. It's interesting to hear you say this because I feel like I feel like the way in which you're describing the executive is not what people thought they were going to get when he was elected last go round. So has your relationship with the county executive changed over his term? Definitely. Um, you know, in the beginning, frankly, I, I you know, I support his opponent, uh, uh, Rick Talbert, who's a, a friend of mine and, you know, someone I'm close with. And I was disappointed. But at the same time, I'd heard good things about uh, about the executive and was willing to give him a shot. And then, frankly, in the beginning, he did a couple things that I liked. And and, you know, I was there to help get his bills passed. In fact, very often it was Democrats who were actually leading the charge to defend the things that he had uh, proposed. Since that time, it's uh it's changed considerably. And, and huh. I, some of that seems to have been timed right around the 2016 election. I don't know that um, it's, that's exactly what happened, but, um, uh, but since then, you know, we basically have no relationship uh, to be honest with you. Uh, uh, and, you know, he's actively worked for a number of things that are high prior or worked against a number of things that are high priorities for me. Public health is obviously one, uh, another is sustainability and climate change. You know, we're in a, that crisis didn't go away when uh, COVID showed up. Um, and he, you know, fought against, you know, my proposals to reestablish the sustainability um, uh, management uh, position uh, and, and planner position um, that he'd eliminated the previous budget cycle. And so, um, you know, it was, it got down to literally where I was saying, look, I'm going to vote against this budget in, in local government. That doesn't happen very often it, to make a extremely partisan uh, budget process um, would have been a uh, almost unheard of in city and county government. And so uh, I think they finally backed off as a result, but, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, there's, 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 good bipartisan stuff that can happen. This, you know, none of these things are radical, you know, uh, left-wing proposals. I know I'm in the minority, you know, I, I know what, what is achievable and, and try to make sure we get there. But, um, you know, just as another example, Pierce County remains the only Western Washington uh, County uh, that hasn't passed the behavioral health tax, uh, the only mm -hmm. urban county that hasn't passed it. Um, and yet, um, you know, when we went to ask uh, Bruce to, help support it because uh, we needed, uh, you know, we have to get a supermajority. So we literally need two Republican votes. Um, and knowing what this, you know, any kind of tax increase, what that means for them, you know, having the cover from the leader of their uh, party in Pierce County um, would have been a huge deal. So we went to him and said, we'd like you to get behind this. And uh, his response was, I don't think you have the votes. And I just kind of laughed because I'm thinking, if I had the votes, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> That's the whole point. Um, and, you know, I, I don't need a weather vane for executive. I need a leader. Um, and that that's, seems to be the problem. Hmm. I want to dig into the COVID-19 response and talk about data a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some of the indicators that 
citizens should be looking at to know that things are on the right track and the wrong track? Or differently, what are some of the indicators that you look at and how are they trending? Yeah, there's, uh, there, I'd say there's really, I mean, we, we, look, we track a lot of indicators, but there's really three that are the main ones. Um, the first is the, um, the uh, number of cases per 100,000 uh, population in the last 14-day period. Uh, that's something that the governor's has established as his main uh, metric in terms of what he's tracking to see the amount of spread within a county. And so it's normalized for population. And also because it's over a 14 day period, um, you shouldn't get too much, you know, wobble in the, in the data. Uh, that's an important one to look at because that's really what drove the decision um, uh, to, uh, to require schools be closed uh, because our community spread, uh, you know, it's, it's starting to edge down. And so that's good news. Uh, but it still remains fairly high. Um, the other is the positive rate. So if, uh, you know, a lot of people have said, well, the uh, number of cases has gone up because you dramatically increased testing. And it's true, we are doing more testing, um, not enough, I will say, uh, but that's, that's another issue. Um, but the, if the positive rate was, uh, was going down, we would know, yes, in fact, this is likely um, uh, the result of additional testing. Uh, because it's more than tripled, we, we know that it's because of an increased amount of infections in the, in the county. So you want to see, you know, right now we're hovering around uh, 7% positive rate. We really want to see that get that back down to 2%. Um, that's, that's, a, uh, that's the number we were at before um, uh, the latest outbreak. Uh, and then finally, I keep a close eye on hospitalizations. And so there's a, there's a couple ways to measure that. The main one to me is the number of people who have ever who have tested positive and have um, uh, been hospitalized. So that's been edging up. It hasn't dramatically jumped with the number of cases. We're pretty sure the reason for that is that um, it was the most recent outbreak was really driven by younger people, which um, are are affected less by the uh, by the disease. Uh, but that's starting to change now again because we're starting to see that spread now go from younger people to you know middle age and seniors. Uh, so that 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 trend of you know getting younger people getting infected and then bringing it home to you know their family members or uh, spreading it at work um, is it continues. So it's the reason that you know we we keep telling people that there's no um, you know this isn't like something where uh, the only people at risk are those that are t making the decision themselves. Um, you know, they're making decisions for themselves and everyone else they come into contact with. And that's how, um, you know, the spread happens. It's interesting to hear you say the positivity rate is 7%. I was reading an article in Bloomberg that was talking about how the state of New York, no, sorry, New York City has dipped pretty consistently below 1%. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple ways to look at that data. You can say, oh, Pierce County is only 6% higher than New York. Or you can say that actually Pierce County is doing much, much worse than New York, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I think about here where I am right now, uh, the positivity rate immigrant wide is, I think, 5%. But here in the city of Abu Dhabi, it's 0.3%. So again, way to look at that is, is that we're doing, what, 6.7% worse than you all? Or you could look at 0.3 to 7 and say that you're, what, 3 to 70 22 times worse or 26 times worse. Yeah. Yeah. It's an, it's, there's really no question that once you get over that two, 3% range, you're not doing well. It means you're not testing enough and it means that mm -hmm. you, you have uh, more cases. Um, and so um, I, I think both of those, you, you know, both of those factors 
in it uh, are important to track. You know, what, what we really need, and, and this, is, this is really a national strategy issue, and, and the forever frustration from those of us in state and local government is that we don't have a national testing strategy. You know, as much as the president says we test more than anybody else on a per capita basis, that's just not the case. Um, we're actually doing much worse. And you can see that it's a problem because of the labs are getting so backlogged, it's taking two weeks in some cases for people to get the test. Well, that's not a test anymore. It's, it's useless information. You know, we need that information right away. Um, so what I'd like to see us do, and in fact, I'm going to ask our health department to volunteer us for a um, perhaps a, a, a trial, um, essentially, there are new test strips that can be done um, by non-professionals in congregate settings. They, the results are immediate. Um, it's testing for protein spikes, which is the intact virus, meaning it's active and you're contagious. So it's actually an even better test in terms of uh, what we're looking for. Um, and you can do it so quickly that um, you're getting large numbers of people, like in a school or a, a office or a church, any of those settings, we could do large numbers of them. Uh, so far, that hasn't been approved by the FDA. And so um, I, I was thinking that, that we should volunteer for it and see if we can uh, prove that it would be successful. The reason that the FDA hasn't approved them is that their sensitivity rate, meaning the amount of, uh, the amount of accuracy, is only in the 60 to 70% range. And mm. that's true. But at a population level, um, catching 60 to 70% of the cases is actually a huge deal. Um, you could you could potentially get way ahead of the curve. You don't have to have 100% um, uh, sensitivity in order if you only you know can test a certain amount of people a day. So and the other thing is it's it's a spit test. So it's not you know the invasive you know shoving a um, uh, nasal swab uh, up somebody's nose. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I actually had a COVID test today at work. Um, we're headed back to school. And so essentially every staff member has to be COVID tested and every student can be COVID tested. And so the uh, auditorium at our school was converted into basically a testing laboratory or a testing center today. Uh, and it occurred to me, this is my fourth test. And my last test that I got, I got when I landed at the airport and I had my results uh, on the app. They have all hosen uh, by the next morning. So when you're saying seven days wait, mm -hmm. 14 day waits, like that's, that's, that just doesn't work. doesn't work. No. Okay. No. Uh, we're going to take a break here, and when we come back, uh, I want to talk about uh, the Pierce County Health Department and their job and the response, and then also uh, that article about we don't show people out, we show people out. So we'll be back. Hi, this is Nate Bowling, host of the Channel 253 podcast Nerd Farmer and proud Alaska Airlines MVP. You know I love Alaska Airlines, but it's not just me. Recently, Condon S. Traveler named Alaska the best U.S. airline, and this is the second year in a row. So for the last two years, a travel magazine, folks who should know, had given top marks to Alaska Airlines. What do you think put Alaska over the top? In-flight messaging or movies on your phone on select flights? The outstanding customer service? The stellar mileage program where you actually get rewarded for the miles you fly, not just dollars you spend? My vote? The signature fruit and cheese platter and the Northwest craft beers. For your next trip, don't even visit the travel sites. Just skip them and go to alaskaair.com and make your flight with the best U.S. airline. Thank you, Alaska, for your sponsorship of Channel 253, and congratulations. And we are back. I want to thank you for taking the time to download the show today. Uh, this is an important conversation we're having about our community here in Tacoma and Pierce County. We try to give you voices and perspectives you're not going to hear elsewhere. Uh, 
you're not going to get the wonkiest member of the county council ruminating on policy for an hour uh, in the local paper or on the local NPR station. Uh, it would be a sound bite on this radio station. And nowadays in the paper probably wouldn't be there at all. And so if you value these kind of conversations, if you value in-depth analysis, if you value hearing voices that are worth caring about and perspectives, go to your computer, please. This is not charity. Uh, and channel253.com slash membership. It is $4 a month or $40 a year. And your support to this work makes it happen. It does not happen without your help. All right. Derek, I'm curious about your thoughts in particular on the performance of the health department and the head of the health department, Anthony Chen. And I asked this question in particular because uh, Dr. Chen did an interview with Marguerite on Move to Tacoma, and I found myself confounded by some of the things that he was saying. Uh, He's since walked back some of the conversation he was having in that episode about social distancing. I think a lot of us were wrong about a lot of things in March. Uh, But even as recent as like last month, he did an interview with the News Tribune and he talked about how he's making a decision to not publish the locations and businesses that have large outbreaks because he does not want to shame those businesses. And that struck me. uh, Point of personal privilege here. uh, My father contracted the COVID virus at a long term care center that apparently was in the midst of an outbreak, but like that wasn't being communicated to the public clearly. And so for me, like I'm a teacher and like the data about my work is public. There's not like individual student grades that are published, but like as long as I was at Lincoln High School, every year you would see graduation rates, you would see attendance rates, and you would see exam scores published. So Maybe data transparency is just my hobby horse, but I'm, I'm just curious, uh, what are your perceptions of the performance of the health department and of Dr. Chen right now? I would say overall, um, I, I, I really actually am very proud of our department. You know, it, it's, a, it's a small, scrappy uh, health department for the size of county that we have. Um, you know, it's been chronically underfunded, and this is a frustration that I have sort of at the federal and state level as well. So I, I, I don't think that it's it's entirely Pierce County's fault. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll put it this way. That at the federal level, we have 22% fewer public health workers now than we did in 2010. So that just tells you, you know, where things have gone um, since the austerity measures, you know, came into effect. Um, all that said, um, a, as a result, a lot of them had, had to activate to do, uh, you know, most of them are not infectious disease experts. Um, you know, we had folks from environmental health, you know, septic tank folks that were activated to respond to COVID. Um, so they've really done some amazing stuff. And quite frankly, in an environment where public health has been politicized, uh, they're getting some rather, you know, ugly feedback from the public. And so um, to get past all that to do the job, uh, I think is is worthy of commendation. I think overall, uh, Dr. Chen's done a good job. Um, I do understand what you're what you're getting at, and yes, it, you know, March uh, guidance from um, CDC on a couple issues was regrettable. Um, and um, you know, the important thing about a novel virus is that there's a lot we don't know, and uh, and unfortunately, you have some conflicting public health communications issues. The masking thing is the is the most obvious one. Um, they basically were concerned by hoarding behavior that was happening uh, and denying public health or, you know, uh, health workers um, the uh, personal protective equipment that was necessary. 
and worried that recommending masks would be misunderstood as you need, you know, N95 masks um, rather than cloth coverings. That it still could have been communicated differently. Um, and frankly, they yeah. didn't know that um, cloth coverings would be as effective as they have turned out to be. So um, all that said, it's important to adjust. And, you know, that's what public health did. But I, I do think that's a, that's a, that's a worthy call out of an error that was made by uh, public health throughout the country. Um, this, the, on the second issue, I actually understand, I think what he was getting at in that, uh, the issue about the restaurants in particular, um, there's, there's a couple reasons for what he's saying is um, HIPAA rules do apply to public health and uh, we have to be careful. It's why like when you see the community maps that show like, um, you know, where the disease is in, in Pierce County, we have we report on no communities less than 20,000 in population. And the reason is that it would get fairly easy to figure out who was infected um, if you started reporting on things like as small as a business. Um, so there's that issue. It's the personal privacy of the, of the people infected. The second is in, frankly, in most cases, it's not a practice of the business that is the problem. And I, I'll set aside the long-term care facilities because that, that's a different issue and I'll get to it. Uh, but like, sure. let's say a restaurant, if you have a couple people infected um, at a restaurant, um, it, it's not necessarily the restaurant's fault, anything they're doing. In fact, in a couple cases, they've, they've voluntarily raised their hand and said, we had a problem, we closed down, we cleaned everything. But the thing is, we know that almost all the transmission isn't from like fomites, it, we call you know, services, I don't know, or, or surfaces. Um, we know that it's not from that, you know, bleaching everything in your restaurant isn't gonna stop the disease, it's the aerosol. So if, if a person comes in and is infected, that's when um, other people get infected. And so I'm not sure that we should necessarily be sh shaming, as he put it, uh, like a restaurant. Long-term care facilities are a different issue because we've had so many problems in them. Um, and they those are publicized on the website in terms of where there's been outbreaks, um, where we have concerns. Um, and we've actually established drop teams within the uh, health department uh, to go into a facility the second we find uh, uh, the disease and kind of help take over their response to it to make sure that we reduce infection as much as possible. That didn't get, that didn't start in the beginning. Um, and it's mm. one regret I have uh, that we, that we'd started that program early on. Um, but the, you know, it is what it is, but if you, yeah, there is some publishing of, of where there's been uh, problems. And in fact, you've seen um, maybe a couple articles in the TNT that described one care facility in particular that had a nasty outbreak. So, um, yeah, I guess I'll say on the whole, I'm, I'm very happy with the job he's done. Um, again, you know, there's there's going to be some some uh, mistakes along the way from uh, any department. But when I look at the ones we've made, um, they've been mostly understandable, given the information that we had at the time. One of the questions that came in from listeners when I said I was interviewing you is why is the county allowing bars to remain open and serve people indoors? Uh, you say that transfer is like aerosol. Uh, and if I think about like bars are one of the enclosed, like the most enclosed spaces that are most common where people go in and frankly talk loudly. And like yeah. if I had a dollar for every time I've walked on top of Tacoma and seen some dude yelling across the table and spittle flying uh, during the before times, I would have lots and lots of dollars. And not to single out top of Tacoma per se, but why have why has the county decided to allow bars to remain open in particular? So I, I will just say um, I was looking at a, a closure rule for just bars, that, that's all they are. Um, here's one of the problems that we have. In Washington State, the line between bar and restaurant 
is very difficult mm-hmm. to define because if you're serving food and can operate like a restaurant, um, you can be open. Um, and so my big concerns were basically late night, um, you know, young people go out, mess around, have fun. Um, and, th- but it's pretty much designed to help spread the virus. I mean, you got loud music, people talking over each other, no masks, uh, reduced inhibitions because of the alcohol. Um, I mean, everything that makes bars fun is also what helps transmit the disease. And so, uh, but literally like the next day after I, I was asking about it, the governor ordered um, them closed if they weren't operating as restaurants. So a lot of them are converting into a restaurant type thing. So just as an, one example, I know, um, you know, in Gig Harbor Heritage Distillery uh, now has like an outdoor uh, restaurant that they're doing. And, you know, obviously they're serving drinks too, but they're trying to do it in a way that's safe and can keep their folks employed. Um, he's actually done a couple of interesting things. He started a, a delivery service too at one point, which I just thought was kind of fascinating. And the before times, as you put it, um, uh, you would never have really thought about that, but he was looking for a way to keep his folks employed. Um, so. Yeah. Booze delivery is the move, man. Like, come on. I, I, I guess here's the thing for me is that like, so I was back in the States for a month. In that month time, uh, I got takeaway from MSM a half dozen times, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got takeaway from Red Hot. I got takeaway from Doyle's and Nathan Wright Park. I got takeaway from Top of Tacoma. It just seems that going just going inside of an enclosed space like a bar seems imprudent to me and the population is demonstrating that they aren't they aren't responsible to make yeah. this choice and i just wonder would it would it not be better if the choice was made for the population because the population in particular uh young people apparently at this moment seems to be intransigent when it comes to what's reasonable yeah and and to be honest with you I mean, that's been a difficult decision um, you know, it's sort of the same with the masking. Uh, you know, the, I was glad that the or- governor uh, finally ordered it because I was struggling to get basically the support on the board to to do that ourselves. Um, and the, you know, the reasoning was not just like we know it's a public health thing. The businesses were, were having trouble with they were coming to me and saying, look, this is causing conflicts. I need you to take this off my hands because uh, you know, we're already struggling. So I don't want to anger more customers by telling them they have to do something that the health department hasn't even ordered. And um, so we needed to get that done. But in terms of shutting them down, here's the, here's the thing it comes back to, and this is why I'm so frustrated by our federal leadership. If we paid every bar and restaurant to close for a period of time, um, mm-hmm. you know, put money in their hands to do it, and we would knock this virus down quickly. We chose not to do that. So it's a very difficult choice to do it locally because I know what that means for that business, for those workers, and for those owners, and it's probably that they're not coming back. The, 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 the sort of knock-on effects of massively increasing unemployment um, is, is something to consider. So, you know, public health is like 99% about trade-offs. You know, there's, there's choices we make and risks we take, and what's, what's, the, count, what's the counter risk to that decision? Um, you know, we obviously uh, have decided that there's some lines we won't cross, but, um, but there's some orders that are worth it. Um, you know, the most difficult one of, of course is, is schools. Again, um, you know, we know that there are terrible trade-offs there, but we also know, you know, what a, another big outbreak would mean. So it's, it's, yeah. these are all difficult decisions and, and sometimes it's a little hard to, to sort through all that, um, because you don't have all the data in front of you. 
Yeah, it's far easier for me to sit here 7,000 miles, 7, miles away and pontificate on someone else's livelihood than it is to make those decisions as an official. So point taken. Uh, you mentioned schools, by the way. Uh, listeners, if you're curious about the school conversation, Crossing Division had a great conversation uh, with two parents giving kind of opposite sides of the issue. Yeah. Uh, Evelyn, Auntie Ev has been killing it like for months now. Uh, Crossing Division is a great listen and check that out if you're curious about that. That was good. Uh, I want to pivot, I think, to the sheriff's department. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason why I actually have you on today is that there was an article that was published in the News Tribune. And so, first off, apologies. I've never actually heard her name said out loud. I'm not sure if it's Stacia or Stasia Glenn, but Stacia or Stasia, good reporting here. Uh, essentially, it was about chokeholds. And chokeholds are one of those things where I feel like we're heading down the Orwellian, like, hair splitting. Uh, Pierce County Sheriff Department basically said in the article that, like, we don't do chokeholds. Chokeholds are bad. But we do a thing called vascular neck restraints. And I'm reading this really fast. And so a chokehold is cutting off somebody's air supply. A vascular neck restraint is cutting off the supply to somebody's brain. So instead of cutting off their air supply, they basically, like, block the artery on somebody's neck that brings blood to their brain. And according to the News Tribune, 330 vascular neck restraints were applied to people in Pierce County from January 2016 to July uh, 2019. Of those 330 people, 127 people lost consciousness and passed out. That's 45%. So the Pierce County Sheriff's Department is saying to us, we don't use chokeholds. We use this other thing. But 45% of the time we apply this maneuver, the person passes out. And that's good policing and good lawmaking and good law enforcement. I know that I know that law enforcement is difficult, but I struggle with this. And so I just kind of want to pose to you. The Pierce County Sheriff's Department, who is under the purview of the county council and who bills itself as being one of the best trained police departments in the state when it comes to de-escalation and everything else, is using a tactic that renders citizens unconscious 45% of the time and is acting like this is something to be celebrated. What are your thoughts? So uh, this is a difficult uh, one. I, I'll be, <clears throat> just to say it up front, um, I'm against the use of all neck restraints. Um, uh, and I think they're dangerous and unnecessarily so. Um, again, as you state, policing is a, difficult job. Um, they're obviously uh, in using this in, mostly in circumstances where there's there's violence happening. And uh, so they're attempting to stop that. So uh, that's all difficult. And I want to acknowledge that. That said, um, if you notice in that same article, my, my police chief and a good friend of mine, Chief Busey from Gig Harbor Police Department, mentioned that he had put a ban on its use in Gig Harbor. So this isn't something where policing uh, around the country is has of unanimous uh, mind that this is a this is a safe uh, method to use, and the reason that I struggle with it is, on the one hand, the 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 maneuver is legitimately different than than a chokehold. Chokehold, uh, you're you're putting pressure on the esophagus, and effectively you can kill a person pretty easily that way. Uh, it does take longer though. Um, it, if you've ever watched MMA, what they're doing is essentially the the choke move that you see often done there. And the reason it's so quick is you're cutting off the blood supply to the brain. Um, and it's also, uh, you know, you mentioned that they're fainting 45% of the time. That's actually the point. Um, it, it's to 
make them unconscious uh, so they stop resisting. Um, and uh, that's, that's dangerous in and of itself. More importantly is the difference between a chokehold and a vascular restraint is a matter of inches. You know, you've still got your, you're restraining somebody around the neck. Uh, we've seen how dangerous that can be. And I think that, um, I'll, two things about that article. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I was shocked by the amount of times it's been used. I, I had no idea that it, they use it so often. Uh, you know, the Sheriff's Department is a very large department. People forget that we have an enormous um, uh, urban unincorporated area that has, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in it. Uh, if it all incorporated into one city, it would be the second largest city in the state of Washington. Uh, so they're policing large territories. So that's part of the reason that that was, uh, there were so many cases. All that said, it was still shocking to see how many cases. Um, we actually voted on this a um, uh, couple months ago. Um, Councilmember uh, Campbell proposed an, uh, an amendment to a bill uh, to um, ban uh, the use of chokeholds, uh, and uh, it was voted down along party lines. And I was disappointed in that because I think, um, you know, I respect Sheriff Pastor. Um, I think if he reviews the information, uh, the available research on this, that this is dangerous. You know, there's a number of recommendations you, you we're starting to see to reduce the incidence of police violence and, and uh, the lethality of it um, uh, around the country. Prohibiting neck restraints is, is one of the uh, recommendations you find on most of those lists, um, that it's, it's just too risky for the amount of advantage that you gain. So that means it has to be replaced with other things. And you know, I always say that, you know, if you look at policing and justice in our country, it's it's all one big policy failure. You know, by the time you get to the point where you are fighting with somebody, um, you know, we have we have failed. Something has sent that person along those lines. Yes, there are evil people in the in the world, but for the most people, um, it's essentially untreated trauma, uh, behavioral health disorders, uh, a number of other social problems. And you know, in Pierce County, at like a number of places, you know, you hear about a lot about the defund uh, police movement. Um, we already did that. We have like a third of the number of policing per capita that Seattle does. We just forgot to do the second part where you invest in these social supports that actually keeps people from um, from causing criminal behavior. That's what other countries do and why they're successful. So uh, we need to make a bunch of um, different decisions so that we don't end up in that point. That said, uh, we need to find ways for police to protect themselves and the public. Um, so they need to be retrained to use a different tool. I just wanna make sure that I heard what you said correctly. Councilmember Campbell put forth a bill or resolutions, whatever, whatever the hell y'all call them, mm -hmm. to ban neck restraints. And it was voted down on the county council along party lines. Correct. Okay. Okay. One last kind of conversation piece along uh, the lines of the Pierce County Sheriff's Department. Uh, I've been watching from afar and have been quite moved by the story of Manuel Ellis. Uh, he was killed on the fringes of the city of Tacoma. Uh, there's been protests about the involvement of Tacoma police and video came out far after the fact of his killing. Uh, it's an example of a neck restraint. The Pierce County Sheriff's Department was involved in investigating, and now the state attorney general is investigating. I'm just wondering, as somebody who, again, oversees this organization and this agency, uh, 
do you have thoughts about the Manny Ellis killing and how the Pierce County Sheriff's Department has handled itself in the investigation of it? Yeah, uh, so I'll comment most directly on the Pierce County um, portion of it because the sure. um, the actual um, incident itself is still under investigation. So I don't want to conclude too much um, uh, there. I I think it's it's clearly a tragedy. Uh, you know, here's a man from what I understand again exhibits all those things I just mentioned. Is you know he had schizophrenia and was um, uh, was on was using a substance. He um, uh, I, I my understanding is he cleaned up and was basically. Um, uh, relapsing. Um, all that said, um, you know, that caused the incident. Um, it's, it's, it contributed to his death, but ultimately the, the cause of the death was, uh, the use of the, of the restraints, um, and according to the, the medical examiner. So the Pierce County portion, um, under, uh, initiative 940, which was recently passed by voters on to, you know, basically do a number of things to reduce, uh, police violence and improve accountability. Um, our department did not follow a number of those, the rules that were set down in there. Um, they did not communicate with the family appropriately. Um, they, um, you know, quite frankly, uh, Mr. Troyer said things in public that simply were not true. Um, and that not is, Ed. Yes. Not Ed. No, no. Okay. Oh, shocked. Sorry. And, continue, continue. Uh, I know I, he, um, uh, was not, um, did not help the situation. Uh, I'll put it that way. And, um, and even the investigation itself was not being uh, done according to the, the the rules set out in 940. So the prosecutor rightfully <clears throat> recommended that um, the attorney general take over. Uh, quite frankly, I think that's something that has to be done. We need to change this so that, uh, you know, agencies that work often together, um, you know, aren't investigating each other because, you know, even if, you know, they're also professionals most of them are not going to do the wrong thing just because, you know, a, you know, they know someone that, um, uh, that is under investigation. Um, these folks are, are, are trusted with the, uh, by the public to, to handle situations like that, uh, professionally. That said, we know we've lost the public's trust and have to gain that back. So how do we do that? I think, um, there's a number of reforms that we need to pass. Um, but one of them is creating a state agency that does, these um, uh, investigations for local governments, and that would take you know it out of our hands. Um, it would uh, it would also make it more available to you know. There, there's jurisdictions. You know, I lead our legislative um, strategy for uh, for the Washington State Association of, uh, Association of Counties, and so I'm in constant communication with commissioners from far flung, very small rural counties. And I always think about how would they have the resources to even accomplish this if you know. Let's say, you know, the, the uh, chief of police in, in Republic, you know, was suspected of, uh, of something. Would the county there have the resources to, uh, uh, to, uh, to investigate that properly? I don't know. Um, by the way, I picked that uh, city out of the air because uh, that's where Lauren Colt is from, in case you were wondering. <laughs> um, so the, um, I, I guess I, I think that would improve that the public's trust in what we're doing. The other thing that needs to happen is we need more accountability measures. So um, Councilmember Campbell and I have have sponsored a uh, bill to um, uh, to require or, or to to authorize uh, dash cams and uh, uh, body worn cameras for the sheriff's department. That's been an ongoing frustration of mine. We got the bill changed you know, uh, four years ago, I worked my rear off on that. And frankly, so did um, now Speaker Jenkins. Um, 
who resurrected that thing from the uh, from death multiple times. Um, you know, the research shows that it doesn't necessarily change behavior, but it improves accountability. It gives you more eyes on you know what what is happening in a scene. Uh, we need, frankly, uh, a change in the way we hire folks. Uh, so making sure that they're the right kind of people. I referenced Chief Beauty again uh, uh, you know, a little bit ago from Gig Harbor. One of the things he insists on, he says, you can't train um, you know, a, a cop that it wasn't the right fit for in the beginning. So they actually screen for emotional intelligence uh, right from the get-go to make sure that this is a person who's doing the job for the right reasons, um, you know, to literally to serve and to protect, not because they, they want a badge and a gun. But there's two different reasons that people, uh, the you know, there's lots of reasons people join a force, but uh, you want to hire people for the right reasons. They do need training. Uh, they need constant training uh, to make sure that they're up to date on the most um, humane way of dealing with people. We need to invest in behavioral health resources so that the person that shows up to a scene, if it doesn't require a badge and a gun, is somebody else, you know, their the, uh, behavioral health crisis worker or something along those lines. In some cases, it'll be both. But Either way, you know, that de-escalation needs to start happening. Um, so there's a bunch of stuff that needs to get done, but um, I think we need some reforms to initiative 940. Um, and hopefully, you know, that's one good thing that can come out of this is, is showing that it's not working. Uh, we need to get it fixed and um, improve from there. It's so fascinating to me because it seems like the ideal profile of a person who serves as a law enforcement officer that society thinks or like society seems to be asking for, is a mix of a paramedic and a social worker and a firefighter. But instead, who we have are disproportionately paranoid right-wingers who uh, are either like MMA wannabes, which is like why the chokehold thing keeps coming up, I feel like, mm -hmm. or people with like gun fetish adrenaline junkies. And like that's not what the population community needs, particularly like when what law enforcement does most often is deal with people who are having mental issues and domestic violence incidents. Like we keep sending these adrenaline junkies and these gun nuts, for lack of, a, lack of a better term, in situations when like that toolkit's not called for. And I, I don't understand how, well, I understand how, but it's something that we allowed to have, we allowed to happen over the last 40 years kind of quietly. And I think the profile of the typical officer is very different today than it was 40 years ago. Uh, in particular, I, I, I'm struck by how many officers don't live in the communities they serve, uh, but that's a whole different conversation for a different day. I want to just wind this conversation up with a uh, bit of a hobby horse of yours and talk about transit. Mm -hmm. uh, in last year's election, a Tim I'm initiative was passed that basically gutted the state's ability to fund transportation. And throughout the COVID outbreak, like we're seeing property taxes, sorry, property tax income, sales tax income, like plummeting to local municipalities. What is the near-term future for both the link light rail extension to Angle Lake and kind of Pierce Transit writ large? So, um, good questions. The, the, my understanding is that the link light rail project is still on track, um, uh, no pun intended, um, and, <laughs> and that it, it's, it should not be impacted by this. The, the eventual uh, connection um, uh, to the Tacoma system is, it may get delayed like a couple years. That's my understanding. I'm not on the Sound Transit Board, um, uh, so I, I don't know for sure, but I believe that to be the case. Pierce Transit's a little bit different issue, and um, you know, unlike uh, Sound Transit, which now has um, 
property tax as, as a revenue source. Um, it's entirely sales tax dependent and sales tax has taken a serious hit. The other thing is that um, a significant portion, not a, not a huge portion, but a significant portion of their revenue comes from the fare box. Um, and the ridership has plummeted um, in COVID. Uh, it, it has not gone down as much as some transit, I will note, um, which is kind of interesting. It tells you that Pierce Transit system is more about people who rely on transit, meaning that they're not choice riders. Uh, you know, something like half of the ridership earns less than $27,000 a year, which is just, you know, okay. we're talking deep poverty. Um, Sound Transit is obviously more of a commuter system. Um, and a lot of those workers that were, you know, living in Tacoma or Gig Harbor, wherever, uh, were, were commuting up to Seattle, were going to like tech jobs and stuff that they're now working from home. So their ridership is down like in the 80% numbers. I mean, it's, it's incredible how much they've lost. Um, so all that said, uh, Pierce Transit has some tough days ahead. The other problem is that they're starting out from a worse position than our peer agencies mm-hmm. because they get basically two thirds of the revenue. Uh, basically, the, last, the first time uh, uh, Iman's CARTAB uh, measure passed initiative 695, um, the, the state essentially eliminated their support for, for local transit. Um, so there's very little uh, state level uh, transit funding but they did give another three-tenths of a percent sales tax to locals to pass. Um, we have so far been unable to pass that in Pierce County, um, kind of a recurring theme, uh, as you might have noticed. And as a result, um, per capita, our service hours are much lower than other places. This also gets to a problem that I like identify as, you know, most people know that Washington is a highly regressive tax code, um, the most regressive in the country by far, but it's also highly localized meaning that we push services and responsibilities down to the local level and expect locals to make that up with sales tax revenue. Well, when you look at Pierce County versus King County, we can only raise about 60% for the same one-tenth of 1% sales tax um, that they can in, in, in King County because they're a wealthier place, right? Um, you'll find that all over the, the, the state where uh, these little you know local option uh, sales taxes don't do a lot for a lot of communities. And so uh, it's created this enormous inequity in our system. Even our supposedly regional transit agency, Sound Transit, actually localizes all of it. So our dollars can't go up to King County, but the exact opposite is also true. King County dollars can't come down here. So the people that need transit the most, that rely on it the most, get the worst service. That to me is insane. Yeah, I've heard you talk repeatedly about a regional solution because as you mentioned, that congestion on I-5 crosses county lines, and those are workers who work in Seattle but live in Tacoma, but all those transit dollars being generated in Seattle from sales taxes stay up there. So mm-hmm. point well taken. So Derek, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, we've been ending things with a segment called Here, hold this L. Hold this L. Hold this L. And so I wonder, I think you agree with me that cancel culture is not real, but there are some folks in life who really need to shut the hell up. And so who would you like to hold an L? Okay, so I, I really want to say Skip Bayless, but I have an, I have an actual answer. Uh, uh, so uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., um, uh, quite possibly the most destructive person in politics these days, uh, aside from the current occupant of the White House. Uh, he is an anti-vax conspiracy theorist um, uh-huh. and has been, you know, one of the people most responsible for that movement. Uh, you know, he's one of their most public faces other than like Jenny McCarthy. Um, and he adds an air of credibility because of his name. 
And so this guy is, uh, you know, as a result, you know, something like 30 or 40% of the country's thinking that when the vaccine is prepared for COVID, that they won't take it. Um, that is going to cause injuries and deaths on a scale that I just can't imagine. And uh, his most recent behavior was to claim that Bill Gates was trying to uh, create this vaccination program in order to put microchips in us, which I, I don't even know where to begin with that. So yeah, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., take the L. <laughs> uh, just a quick data point. Do you know off the top of your head, what's the ballpark number of Washingtonians who have passed away from the virus, like ballpark? I actually don't remember the state level stats on this. Um, it, it's, okay. it's in the couple, well, I don't want to guess off the top of my head and be completely wrong here. But it's in the thousands, right? Yes. And this is my frustration. Like, I, I'm sitting here right now in a country with a population of 10 million people, which is more or less Washington State's population, and the number is under 370. That's incredible. Like, public health policies that are adopted by the population, mask wearing, social distancing, and reduced capacity in businesses effing works. And I just I, – I, I cannot – get over the idea and the fact that so many deaths that are happening are completely unnecessary and preventable. And it's really frustrating, honestly. Uh, Derek, thank you for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're a two-time guest now. One more time and you get a smoking jacket. That's the new tradition. Uh, if people want to follow you on the socials, where should they look? Uh, so on Twitter, it's at uh, uh, Derek M. Young. And same thing for uh, Facebook if you want to uh, roll on there. Derek, thank you very much for on the show. I appreciate you. Uh, go Sounders. Wakanda for every y'all. Wash your damn hands. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. We've been, so we end the show with a thing called here. Hold, damn it, Doug, I did it wrong. F***ing hell. You ever think, ah! <laughs> Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows, Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.